are back after a hiatus for Christmas, New Year's, skiing, and relaxation. This is episode 388 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government. And the views we're about to express do not reflect those of our institutions, our clients, our friends, our family, not even our pets. But joining me, it's going to be a good panel, are Megan Stiffel from the Institute for Security and Technology, Scott Shapiro, uh, professor of law and philosophy at Yale Law School, Nick Weaver, teaches computer science at UC Berkeley, and I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS and the host of today's program. Let's jump in. You know, the Christmas break is when newspapers that have foreign bureaus, which are relatively few of them, run stories that required a lot of work especially in countries that don't celebrate Christmas very much. And so we got a bunch of stories about China and cybersecurity and the internet. And some of them were pretty thoughtful and deeply reported and pretty good. Megan, do you want to give us a sample of a couple of them? Sure. So there there are two that that are fairly similar. And and I guess I wasn't tracking that what you just shared, uh, Stuart. So essentially what we have are, are reports from the po- Washington Post and the New York Times regarding China harvesting data overseas. So while the reports were in depth and quite detailed, I'm not sure whether to subtitle these to kind of what took them so long or the latest version of kind of the noisy burglar that, that we know China to be. Um, so in the first case, there's a Washington Post investigative report that found that China's public opinion analysis software, which is a countrywide network of government data surveillance services, was mining social or is mining social media, including Facebook and Twitter, to equip uh, its government agencies, military and police with information on foreign targets. Now, again, I'm not surprised by this, and I guess I would hope that not, others are not either, but perhaps we're surprised by the public nature of the uh, transparency around their contracting process. So, well, that's another that's a the, WTO requirement, which they're going to regret and then breach. I predict as this publicity continues. Yeah, there's guidance about public uh, procurement contracts having to be open, and so I'm sure that's what a lot of this comes from. Uh, it is interesting that what's going on here is not surprising because uh, everybody does it. Is stuff that has been developed for use inside China, where they yeah. absolutely have to have their finger on the pulse of public opinion, and they can't count on, you know, polls or uh, elections to tell them what people are thinking. So they, they use a bunch of tools to, to, to measure sentiment on the internet, and then later to punish it for it, uh, they don't like it. And what we're seeing here is taking those tools global. Yep. Uh, yes. and, and that is a That's not exactly new, but it's uh, the detail uh, and the extent of their uh, reach is pretty remarkable. Yes. You know, I think the, you know, a a number of of troubling factors here, but, uh, you know, sort of following or the further evidence that of China, I don't know if it's following Russia's playbook or the, um, you know, parallel practices by these two countries. But yes, this idea that the reach is quite broad and the idea that, that, by gathering this information, Beijing is able to refine its foreign propaganda efforts through other information or other capabilities that maybe it generated internally or maybe it stole, uh, <laughs> such as you know, kind of the analytic information and, and AI. I know we've talked about that before, but of course, too, there's this recognition for the lawyers out there that what was what these procurement uh, contracts are for are practices that are banned by 
entities like Twitter and Facebook. So this idea of automated collection of data without prior authorization is something that's contrary to the, the terms of service of and whatnot of, of Twitter. It's and contrary Facebook. to the terms of service. It's not banned. They, they, they don't have no, a good well, way to police this. No, they don't. But they say that they you should not do that. Um, but among other challenges is the, this idea that the, the, the trends that this information, these procurement contracts were for, the outcome of them is uh, part of a collective viral trends hotline, 24-hour hotline that's maintained by China's Cybersecurity Administration, which is the body that oversees the country's censorship apparatus. So this, I had a thought when I was reading that story that they do have this, that this hot, that they want to be able to respond immediately. And of course, again, this is something that they developed for internal stuff where they need to punish new stories quickly if they're not uh, in accord with uh, leadership uh, desires. But if they were doing this at the beginning of the pandemic, you know that their 24-hour hotline would have been burning up with stuff that mean stuff people were saying about China and Wuhan and the virus. And it makes you wonder whether there wasn't a substantial effort to shape the the dialogue mm -hmm. using all of these tools and also their influence at the WHO and to elsewhere. Because we certainly saw a lot of people saying, you can't say that, that's racist, about people blaming China for their lack of transparency with respect to the virus. And, it, you know, knowing that they had a mechanism for responding within 24 hours to bad press outside of the United, outside of China, makes you wonder exactly what they did when things started to turn bad for them with the virus. Yes, certainly. And both reports give detailed, uh, both stories rather, give detailed examples of, not necessarily with respect to the pandemic, but other interventions where the apparatus did reach out to people who are speaking ill of the regime and uh, measures such as, you know, in one case, it was a student who was in Australia, whose father was essentially, there was a rap on the door and the father basically, the father's phone was used by the authorities to call the student in Australia to tell her to knock it off. Uh, and she first kind of denied that she had a Twitter account. And then and they said, well, we know, we, we, she only had like a hundred followers. Isn't that right? That's the one yeah. where they, uh, and, and they tracked down her parents and they knew exactly yeah. what she'd been saying. I thought it was, it, Fascinating. And I, if this is the woman I remember, what's particularly sad about that is that she didn't quite give up tweeting no. and Twitter shut her down, which means <laughs> <laughs> uh, for some violation that, of course, they didn't explain and which they immediately said, oh, that was a mistake when they got a call from a big media source. But, <clears throat> you know, it, this makes you wonder. Here we have a foreign nation that doesn't have our interests at heart that is freely utilizing their access to Twitter and Facebook and YouTube uh, to punish speech in the United States that they don't like. And the companies, one, can't control it, two, are not telling the U.S. government anything about it and are actually being actively deployed to punish yeah. the speakers and not telling us about that either, only when they have changed their position. So I, I, I do hope that if somebody on the Hill is listening to this, that you call Twitter in and demand that they produce all of the records relevant to this person's shutdown, because I'm willing to bet it's the Chinese using some mechanism for saying, mm -hmm. oh, there's racism or bigotry or personal abuse on this site, on this account, you should shut it down. And Twitter's saying, oh, I guess we'll shut it down then. They really need to be 
more accountable for their de facto alliance with the uh, Chinese Communist Party. Oh, Twitter's Twitter's aligned with the Chinese. Is that well? Yeah, you know, that's okay. what they what they did de facto <laughs> is they did what yeah. the Chinese Communist Party wanted. Well, yes, it certainly suggests that there needs to be a better a, a bit. A much better, probably, degree of due diligence given to these requests for account suspension than than merely, you know, one flag or ten flags by a Chinese bot. All right. Well, so, I, you know, I, 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 now that I've yeah. worked it around to a rant about Twitter, we can yes. we can move on. Always. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So more China news, kind of. The China initiative has been widely criticized uh, for targeting Chinese ethnic Chinese defendants. But the prominent defendant that was targeted by the China initiative was not ethnic Chinese. And the Justice Department uh, just convicted him. Scott, he's close to you, maybe just close enough that the Harvard-Yale rivalry will play a role in your commentary. Uh, um, let's hope not. We're taught at Yale to be completely objective. So just by way of um, a background, the Thousand Talents program was started by the Chinese government in 2008 to recruit foreign academics and bring them to China. Basically, got a chair and a lot of money. Lots of states have these programs. India has one. Singapore has another. In the last few years, China has been targeting recruitment towards STEM fields in particular areas where there's technological competition between China and the United States. And the U.S. government, through its China initiative, has been arguing that the program is used to, not without justification, that the program is used to gain access to new technologies developed in the, in the U.S. as software like a, a soft form of intellectual property theft. Now, usually the participants in this program have connections to China, such as having been born there, but China got a big score when they got Charles Lieber, who at one point was the chair of the chemistry department at Harvard, who's an expert in nanotechnology. It was a part-time job that he had, but it was a big score because he had no Chinese affiliation beforehand. And he was prosecuted by the DOJ, and he was, as you mentioned, convicted at the end of December, but not for espionage or selling trade secrets or helping the enemy or anything like that. It was basically Al Capone stuff, failing to disclose foreign income on his tax returns, failing to disclose the existence of foreign bank accounts. He also lied to federal investigators about be participating in the Thousand Talents program. So they got him, but like, it, you know, like as I said, like not for the reason that the Chinese initiative, uh, China initiative was created to police, but for this other non-disclosure stuff. Yeah, I can't help thinking <clears throat> it, it, that we would have heard a different and more aggressive defense if he were not suffering from what's almost certainly going to be a fatal case of cancer. They made a lot of filings about that, wanting to get the trial done. But, uh, you know, once you realize you're probably not going to live through 2022, uh, you start asking, do I want to spend all my money on this defense or do I want to leave it to my kids? And my bet is, you know, he had a perfectly good defense, but he... He didn't turn this into the cause celeb that I would have expected. I disagree. Okay. Um, in the academic circles, this was a case that was followed very closely. And truth be told, he actually did have a far less defense, and this was far less egregious overreach on prosecution than, say, the Tennessee Dr. Who, who was acquitted right. on charges related to this. Because... 
two things. He did piss off Harvard because he used Harvard's name without Harvard's permission in setting up this joint lab. And it really was blatant tax dodging, multiple hundreds of thousands of dollars in Chinese accounts and never reporting that income. It is pretty blatant. And so I think that's why it never became as much of a cause celeb in the academics is because this was a much clearer case of crossing multiple lines compared with others. It's it's um, a, it's it's a big deal though. Uh, you know, he apparently thought he was a pretty serious candidate for a Nobel Prize. That's what he said. It was one of the reasons he did the the China thing. He thought it would uh, raise his profile. I just to follow with just what Nick said. I mean, he got paid fifty thousand dollars a month in cash. He had two hundred thousand dollars in a in Chinese foreign bank account, and he's getting NSF grants. You really have. I mean. You really have to declare that, and also there's there's a whole thing involving the IRS and and paying taxes. So it's not it's not particularly sympathetic in terms of what he did, but again, it really wasn't a form of academic espionage that that the China Initiative is designed to ferret out. I agree. With the, with the, what I'm seeing with clients that I advise is this was a. BFD for academics uh, two years ago. Everybody was worried about it. Everybody was focused on it. And everybody learned, well, I could just disclose it, you know, just disclose it. Uh, and so I think most researchers are now just disclosing it. And it's largely over as a worry unless they are engaged in intellectual property violations. Yeah, I mean, I just say, as having just gotten an NSF grant, I mean, we, Yale makes you go through all these trainings for conflict of interest and disclosure. I mean, it, it, it's not like it's not a small technical thing. Yeah. And any institution that's doing government grants has those sorts of processes. So like ICSI, every year I do the conflict of interest thing, mm -hmm. which is boringly mild. All right. Well, this is this is the best story I thought of the of the last couple of weeks because it's got helicopters to Zermatt and insider trading using break-ins to the Edgar uh, filing system, and then on top of it, it turns out that the guy who was stopped before he could get on his helicopter to Zermatt in Switzerland has been extradited to the United States for hacking people who are filing at Edgar and doing insider trading. And on top of that, everybody thinks that his company, M13, was involved with the GRU in the hack of the DNC in 2016. And so there's an expectation that we're going to hear some really interesting stuff about the inside story on some of that hacking as a result of a deal he may do. Certainly the Russians seem very frightened about that possibility. They do. So yes, we're speaking about Mr. Klyushin, uh, if I've pronounced it correctly. So he and three other Russians were indicted and arrest warrants were issued in March of last year. And I think we talked about the yep. a little bit of this before, maybe the last time I was on. They've been accused of this elaborate insider trading scheme, as you uh, stole most of the talking points for this um, in your <laughs> intro. Um, 
But essentially, it's not that they hacked the Edgar system, but they hacked uh, systems that feed the Edgar system over a series of years. And there are two financial agencies, institutions identified in the, was it the indictment that we have here? Essentially, they were not surprisingly popping people's credentials to, at these two, at least these two uh, entities that are identified publicly and using those credentials to obtain insider information prior to, so essentially draft press releases from large companies, including Tesla uh, and others, IBM, there's a list of, of the victims about around, about whose non-public information they traded. And the bottom, you know, at the end of the day, Mr. Klyushin, I believe is the, is the top dog at M13. And then we have this other, one of the other fellows, Ivan Ermakov, uh, if I'm yeah. that correctly. And he is the one who who was also indicted in 2018, along with a dozen other GRU officials for the supposed interference in the 2016 election. And in that case, we were speaking; they were speaking specifically of the hack and dump at the DNC. So, you know, there there are a couple of of many many folks, maybe myself included, are sort of you know licking our chops or tickling our fingers, thinking, "What are we going to get here?" Now, I don't know that this guy is actually going to flip and spill the beans on his supposed GRU buddies. I think that that's probably unlikely but at the very least you know there's this you know further evidence of you know you you may be safe in russia but you ain't safe in much where else so uh, this idea of kind of safe havens that hopefully the number is continuing to shrink i'm sure because, that, say, i'm was, sure that the justice department is going to put him in the same cell that they used to protect epstein so we're we're good <laughs> we'll see but yes so that you know, we have the the m13 folks who supposedly which is what the organization that that uh, Klyushin and his friend ran, which, among other things, brags that they provided IT solutions to the presidential administration of the Russian Federation. Oh, sure. Um, gee, if that's not a way to sort of advertise yourself as a target for foreign intelligence yeah. collection, I don't know what is. But it turns out that, among other things, that helped uh, probably us find them. And yeah. now, as a result of the, the actions, bring I them home. Apparently, his attorney, I don't know if you saw this, Stuart, he was supposed to have been arraigned on Monday, but the, his counsel was not exactly uh, astute, and so therefore didn't file the proper paper. So now he's being arraigned today. Yeah, his counsel is, is is Russian or uh, actually it's a Swiss, if yeah. I remember right. Uh, so he probably didn't get uh, counsel here yet. Yeah, uh, and the Russians filed a competing extradition request. They indicted him too, which is how you know that they're worried that he's going to flip. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So more to come. Maybe we'll be talking about this, it in a couple months. Be, this will be fun to watch. Uh, and I'm, I, I'm with you. The likelihood that Klyushin has something that's going to change what we know. I mean, we already know the Russians uh, hacked the DNC. And he, uh, unless he has the logs, which I think is pretty unlikely, it's hard to know what he's going to tell us. Unless, you know, maybe he was the go-between with the Trump administration, the Trump campaign. But unless he's got that, uh, it'll be interesting, but probably won't change our view of what happened. Right. I mean, Yermakov was the guy who, and so he, and mm -hmm. who, so he probably knows a lot. Though I agree, he probably know a heck of a lot about the thing anyway. All right, Apple. Speaking of spying on people, Apple AirTags being accused of being a stalking tool with some credibility. Scott, what's the story here, and what should we be thinking about it? Sure. So AirTags are these quarter-sized tracking devices similar to the tile tags that have been around for a while, and Apple put them out in April. You put them like in your wallet, your suitcase, around your pet to maybe run away because they don't agree with the views expressed on this podcast. Privacy experts 
have have been warning about air tags since they came out, not only that they can be used to find objects, but also people that they can be used in stalking. And this came to a head at the end of December when a tweet thread went viral. A woman, Gina Gina, tweeted that she was driving at two in the morning with no cars around her. And she kept getting these alerts on her phone, on her iPhone, saying air tags moving with you. And someone had attached uh, the air tag to the underside of her front wheel well while she was inside a bar. And then another TikTok video went uh, viral telling the same story, so the press picked it up. The, as, as I said, the, the tile has been around for a while, so why the sudden interest? Well, air tags are much more powerful than tile for the simple reason that what air tags do is they crowdsource location tracing. So what an air tag will do is they'll ping iOS devices around, even if they're not the owner of the AirTag, their devices, and the devices will then upload the location of the AirTag to iCloud. And there are, you know, like a billion devices in the world, Apple devices in the world. So AirTags are super useful on the one hand, but like everything, they're also ripe for abuse. Apple has anti-stalking features installed. So for example, if the tag is away from the owner and is moving, the iOS device will alert you that you have tag following you. There's also Apple has reduced the time from three days to less than a day. Will it start to beep if the owner is not around? So the question here is what to do. On the one hand, people love the air tag they keep on getting sold out on the other hand they are being used in car thefts or impossible car thefts and in impossible stalking and so the question is what to do about it and if you're an android user apple has a surprisingly ineffectual answer for you if i remember right right which is that android just put out a, an app which will detect their, you know, uh, air tag. Unfortunately, the you you have to check that it's not run, running natively in the background. And unlike Gapple, where Google and Apple work together on contact tracing, which didn't go anywhere. Here, you can imagine that Google's not crazy about making air tags that much easier to find on their devices because they are helping their competitors. So we'll see what, what happens here, what Apple will do to try to mitigate or whether they'll just say, look, you know. You don't like it, buy an iPhone. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's actually a real hard problem on dual use technologies like this, because this is actually one of the real hard dual use problems because they are so incredibly useful, yet easy to abuse. And how many cases of abuse does it take before you start asking, say, product liability questions? I know there are some lawyers who are waiting for a test case under a product liability claim. Yet the other thing is, is how much is that the technology is better, but not 
that much better than the alternatives. You go on Amazon, you spend 35 bucks and a few bucks a month, and you get a GPS tracker. The GPS tracker goes on the cell phone network and requires more battery. So if you stuck it under somebody's car, it's only good for a week. And it costs a bit more. But not that much more. And yet the AirTag is a superior solution for that thing. And it's really hard. But at the same time, it's hugely useful. Like just the other day, there was a Twitter thread of a guy whose luggage got stolen because United delivered his luggage early. And one of them was driving down the highway. <laughs> um, I, I just to, just to, just to add, which is that the people who a lot of people really don't like the anti-stalking features because it alerts thieves that, um, ah, right. that yeah that that you know their their new e-bike has been stolen. So you know it, it's really, I mean, as Nick said, I mean, I would just say all technology is dual use, and so it always involves these trade-offs. And I suspect that the market will decide what happens. So I, this, when I studied torts and strict liability was, you know, people felt the need to justify strict liability. It was the justification was pretty clear. You say you've got a product, it causes harm, and it also is a very successful product that makes a lot of money and does a lot of good. So why don't we take all those harms and, and require that whoever's making the month from it and who's in a position to design the product to minimize the harm, why don't we make them pay for all those harms? It's not that they're at fault. It's just that they're the better insurer of the people who are suffering from the harm than anybody else. So in, in this case, Apple's obviously making all the money. They're obviously in a position to prevent the harms. Why wouldn't you just say, yeah, let's make them strictly liable and tort for a misuse of the technology? With product liability, there have to be defects, you know, design defects, manufacturer defects. It doesn't seem like there's a defect here. It's actually how the thing's supposed to work. It's just being used. It's designed uh, to kill a few people. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just, you know, like locks. I mean, I was using like locks can keep bad people out or can lock good people in. I mean, it's a, it's a question. It, it, there's no defect there. Well, that's that's, that's why we can still buy guns because right, right. they're being used as designed. Yeah. Uh, well, guns are special. There's a special federal carve out on liability laws saying that gun manufacturers are not responsible when the kill a horde 3000 is used to slaughter 57 people in Las Vegas. Well, and fair enough, because it, it, which means that Despite the fact that they're they're being used as design, there's not a design flaw in them. It was a credible thing to bring those lawsuits until federal legislation was passed. So I'm just not sure that design defect is any more the test. In some cases, it might just be who's in the best position to prevent the harm and to bear the risk. And as between some poor woman at a bar at 1 a.m. and Apple, pretty obvious. But as mentioned earlier, the dual UC is so positive as well that how many e-bikes have been recovered due to an air tag hidden in the stem? Yep. So, um, but and, there it is. You, you say, fine, some people are going to suffer and a lot of people are going to be happy. Those people should pay a little more so that we can ensure the people who are going to suffer. 
That's I, that's Except the argument. Except that the the other problem is is any legal costs are not just the cost of the judgment of actual harm, but any punitive damages plus the legal costs of defending. Um, well, that's so a, that's a contribution really to the greater welfare of the country to pay lawyers more. <laughs> so, okay. And there's a reason why my grandparents said they would take back the college fund if I went to law school. God bless them. That's great. Uh, I, I can tell uh, from your comments in the past on the program that you still sort of miss it. Uh, you kind of wish you'd done that, don't you? Nah. I sometimes <laughs> believe in the Shakespeare solution. Uh, fair enough. First thing uh, we do, let's kill all the lawyers. Okay. Well, here's a story where we have flogged the story to death already, which is NSO. But over the the break, we started to see a lot of stories about NSO competitors. NSO is actually, as far as I can tell, suffering financially and might not make it. But there's a separate kind of star alliance of companies, also with ties to Israel, but also to Macedonia. Nick, what do we know about other people who are trying to take over the hacking as a service uh, business? Well, first we have Kendiru, or however you're supposed to pronounce them, the close NSO competitor in Israel that actually got sanctioned at the same time. Right. And, and they changed their name uh, too. The uh, the fish that's famous for swimming up your yeah. bodily canals and then uh, sticking out its uh, prongs to, so you couldn't get rid of it. It was a great name, but too memorable, and they changed it. And so there have been public spats in the Israeli press about Kindiro complaining how NSO Group ruined it for everybody. But it's really a replication of the trajectory saw a few years back with Gamma Group, aka Finn Fisher and Hacking Team, yep. that what happens if you want to sell exploits as a service is you actually have two very distinct markets. You can sell to law enforcement. So if I wanted to sell stuff to the FBI or Australian thing and sell Malcode to the Aussies, Bill is not going to get mad at me. And you're Bill not going to make a lot of money is my bet. I don't know. It depends. The FBI is willing to pay very well for unique capabilities. That's true. But there's competition, um, look, right? They, they, yeah. uh, because this is a perfectly respectable business in most circles. Uh, and so you've got a lot of competition from people who are very talented uh, and came out of the government. Whereas the people who really want it are people who have more money than they have technical support. And what ends up happening is they get defined by the behavior of their least reputable customer. Yeah. So their least reputable customer, Bahrain, say, or UAE, or Saudi Arabia, attacks targets, gets on Bill Marzak's radar. I give him an iPhone, and he goes to town on that. And then Citizen Lab writes it up. And the initial reaction to these companies is, cool, free publicity. But then they end up in a death spiral situation where they only have access to the bad customers because the good customers fate share. So this is one of the biggest things has been like Facebook and Apple's notification of victims. They're no longer being cautious. So it used to be you'd be very cautious about notifying potential victims. 
because potential victims could be, say, drug dealers in Australia, right? which was one of the things that Bill and the Citizen Lab folks observed in the earlier days. These days, however, if it's Facebook, Facebook notified every victim through WhatsApp, except for those where Facebook had a pen register order already established against that number. So they blew um, a bunch of perfectly legitimate, uh, good law enforcement and intelligence operations, probably. Potentially. And critically set down the marker that if you go with the companies that sell to the bad actors, you fate share with the bad actors. So this may lead to further bisection of the market. So the people who work with the Five Eyes are much less likely to get in trouble. Uh, and uh, even though there are plenty of people who'd be happy to consider three quarters of the five eyes as uh, violators of human rights. Uh, if you, but if you work with those folks, you're much more likely to be protected, uh, though maybe not completely because Apple will still come for you. Apple probably won't because Apple won't be the one to detect you. It's the flow is you hack, um, you hack somebody that gets on Citizen Lab's radar. And then once that happens, Apple then notifies everybody else. And for example, the uh, you covered this earlier, but the hacking of State Department officials using the NSO group, we don't know whether the State Department even knew about that until Apple started spilling the right. beans. Right. They, they, they may have decided to do the press release and the notice at the same time. I, I think that is entirely possible. The other thing that I think is going on, though, is that Israel has in the past viewed this as a... I bet that they've been doing third-party collection off of this, that um, the NSO oh. group, <laughs> yeah. And I think this is actually the thing that pisses off the Israelis the most about this, the Israeli government, is that they're no longer going to be in a position where they can do this sort of third-party collection because their industry just got wiped out by State Department sanctions. Yeah, I, I think that, well, maybe. You know, I, I, I think it's worth remembering that the people who you're counting on for these exploits uh, uh, and weaponizing them, these are really talented people, and you're paying them an enormous amount of money, and they can walk out the door on Friday and be employed in three different places on Monday if they want to. And so... I think what we're going to see is just as these companies have changed their names every 18 months, the people who make them the successes that they are, are going to change companies every 18 months. So we may not actually see a change in the, the actual usage of these capabilities, just the people who's the companies that are doing it. I think we will because of two factors. The targets keep getting harder and harder. So like iOS, for example, now has pointer authentication codes sprinkled all over the place, and they're continuing to do so. And, and the thing is also is the bad guys have to be lucky all the time. The defenders have to be lucky once. So the NSO group's iPhone exploit was really clever. It basically programmed an 8-bit or a computer out of logic gates in bug in a bug in the PDF interpreter. It's just oh my god, mind-blowing to get something programmable out of that. But 
now they now they've lost that asset forever because not only does that particular bug get fixed, but Apple is undoubtedly going to move that step of the rendering pipeline into the additional containment that they had already added on iMessage. Mm-hmm. Yes, but you know, look, uh, I, we've been patching bugs for. Th- 35 years expecting the next time we do it, we will have solved the problem. And Apple's good at patching bugs. Microsoft has been from time to time good at patching bugs, but they still, we still find bugs every month. Uh, Right. But we've been changing the architectures to make them a lot harder to exploit. So like one of the additions in the, I believe it was the iPhone 12's CPU, and this applies to all the M1 Macs, is protections that allow you with zero overhead to make it so attackers can't overwrite pointers. And this makes it really hard to exploit entire classes of vulnerabilities. Okay. I I just remember being so enthusiastic about address space randomization and it's now everywhere and it still doesn't, it's not preventing, it just requires more sophisticated attacks. It doesn't just require more sophisticated attacks. Breaking ASLR requires an additional class of vulnerability. So in breaking ASLR, you have to have a second vulnerability in order to read an address in order to know and de-randomize the ASLR. Which is why we are seeing more group efforts because you have to chain everything uh, and, yes. and people are just getting, uh, are realizing that no one person can come up with all of the attacks that are necessary to work your way through to what's a, you know, random code ex- execution. Okay. Let's go back to China and all the data they're gathering. Megan, I, this one, I had no idea that this was a possibility, but apparently China probably has the best solution to the question of how do I know where my stuff is when I ship it? A- and they're building a, what could be a global system for logistics that somebody described it as the Facebook of logistics, mm-hmm. which I thought was pretty good in every respect, because of course, uh, nobody knows exactly how Facebook works except Facebook. And this, this may be a logistics system that works great, but only the Chinese government understands how it works and what it can do for them. Yeah, I mean, again, I put this in the category of, well, two things. One, it's too bad we didn't figure this out ourselves because we could all be sitting pretty in some island oh, no, somewhere. I, I can offer some thoughts on that because I used to worry about this. We, we worried yeah. about the nuke in a, ca- yes. in, in a container, as you remember. Uh, and, and there were all these efforts to, to put together things to track containers and to have all of the data on what was in the container and who shipped it and how long it spent on the side of the road before it ended up in the port. All of that was something that we really wanted to have happen. And it never happened because everybody feels about that data, that it's their data and they, by God, are not going to share it with anybody. And they don't want to join a system that will force them to share. But the Chinese government uh, was able to override that, at least in China. And now they've got economies of scale that nobody else has. Yes. Yeah. So there's the, too bad we didn't think of creating this or we couldn't get everybody to come to the table and and bring their sand to the sandbox. But then there's the also, of course, China is going to try and do this piece of the story. So it's the public National Public Information Platform for Transportation and Logistics, otherwise known as 
I don't know if it's log ink or log logic, depending on how much you follow log for J right now, you might. I'm going to go with logic because, because that's yeah. logistics. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yes. So this is their, it's a network, digital network, as you described, that links shippers internationally and describes itself as a one-stop shop for logistics information. It draws out a mix of public databases and information, which apparently has 450,000 users in China and at a dozen of the big ports worldwide. Um, and of course, not surprisingly, this all connects to the Belt and Road Initiative. So those ports where they are gathering information are part of China's trillion dollar international infrastructure project, otherwise known as the Belt and Road Initiative by many of us, also called by China, the Digital Silk Road. I was a little confused by the article because it talks about it being a non-for-profit, but whatever, it's China. So you have a non-for-profit overseeing, and I guess we sort of have that here. I don't yeah. know. Anyways, different different podcast. It's a public-private um, partnership. <laughs> <laughs> yes, China's Ministry of Transportation, and and now I don't think it's now suddenly, but it's now suddenly become more public that Washington is concerned about this. So, you know, the idea that this is a treasure trove of national security and economic interest, as one person in the article, who I think might be a friend of yours, was quoted as saying, is is not surprising. Apparently, the U.S. China Congress's U.S. China Economic and Security Review Commission launched an, an inquiry into this in mid December, but I think you know the big worry for, as you described for us and for many, is the several fold. So we have concerns about the intelligence leads that China can gather from this access to all this information. But that then turns into opportunities for additional economic advantage and benefit by having not only kind of the the national security information, uh, but also then leveraging that for economic gain. But then there's also the risk, which I think was sort of underplayed in the article. And it's something that, that many of us may be more concerned about, which is are they going to be able to manipulate the data that is available to their own purposes? So it's there's the collection piece, but then there's the kind of offensive piece that that access to this type of information might benefit, might also be an additional benefit for them. So I'm, you know, this idea that like Facebook, the manipulative opportunities are so many with information like this. And and hopefully we're not too late in, in thinking about ways that we can work with partners to to manage the risks here. It was also so troubling to read in the article, you know, the number of people that they'd interviewed who said, oh, I have no idea what China does with that information that we put in there. It's yeah, like, exactly. What do you think that they're doing with it? <laughs> of course, they're mining it for God only knows what and connecting it. Uh, and of course, they're not telling you that. So maybe you should have asked more or more forcefully. So yeah, troubling. This, this is network effects. This is this is China's yep. market and network effects in China's market, and they wouldn't have had to have any uh, idea of misusing this for it still to have made sense to do. But we're now getting a feel for what it's like not to be the biggest dog on the block in terms of market share. And it's it's going to be painful. Nick, $154 million in Bitcoin stolen by a, a Sony employee and returned by the U.S. How did they get the private key? Uh, it's easy. The Sony employee had basically embezzled it through traditional finance, got blatantly caught, turned it into Bitcoin on Coinbase, and the feds knocked on his door and said, you better give the money back. We know it's you. Okay. So that, you know, it doesn't undermine the, the value of Bitcoin for crime. It just says you've got to be a little smarter than that. A, don't do it in the U.S., and B, Bitcoin private keys are vulnerable to rubber hose cryptanalysis. <laughs> okay. All right. So this is a short story, I think, but it, an interesting one. Clearview, which is the face recognition product that everybody loves to hate, they have conservatives in their management. They gathered their data by scraping it off of Facebook 
which couldn't catch them, uh, and a bunch of other places where people's pictures were widely available. And now the chickens are coming home to roost. Canadian provinces, BC, Alberta, Quebec have all said Clearview, you can't use facial recognition in Canada because you violated the privacy of Canadians. The French Canille, the privacy enforcers, have told Clearview, you must delete this data. Whether they can actually make that stick is a different question because Clearview isn't necessarily in France or anywhere else in Europe. But it's clear they're being beaten up. I think the Australians came to the same conclusion. So they're going to they're gonna have legal problems forever. Turns out they're actually, they're, they're their, their product is surprisingly good. I, I was looking at this for an article I'm, I'm working on. NIST does checks of the accuracy of um, the face recognition systems for like 100 companies. Um, and they just did Clearview. And it was the only American company when they did it that was in the top eight or 10 uh, uh, companies. Everybody else was Chinese or Russian. So what's interesting about this story, I think, apart from the fact that Clearview is getting beaten up, is that the only U.S. company that is currently doing a good job of face recognition is one that everybody mistrusts. And we have, by toxifying it with what I think is a bogus narrative about uh, bias in face recognition, we've driven IBM out of that market. We've driven Microsoft to suspend its participation, Facebook to suspend its participation, uh, and somebody else also stepped out of that market. Oh, yeah, uh, AWS or Amazon has suspended its sales to law enforcement. And basically, by using this what I think is a fake narrative of bias. We've driven all the responsible companies in the U.S. out of the business. And if we want good face recognition, we're going to have to ask the Chinese pretty please, would you sell us your capabilities? Very sad outcome. But when I write the article, I'll, I'll tell everybody you can read it and see if you're persuaded by my analysis. Megan, the SEC is the most aggressive and most hostile to the security of end-to-end -end encryption agencies in the government. It's not the FBI. The SEC is doing more to stamp out end-to-end -end encryption than anybody else. Do you want to explain why? Yes. Well, I, I see, I was going to go purchase from the tisk You don't use uh, off-band off comms. So it turns out JP Morgan, fairly senior staff, I don't think it's alleged kind of exactly what, what level, for several months, at least for years, I think, actually, are have actually admitted to using WhatsApp, the encrypted end-to-end -end messaging platform owned by Facebook slash Meta, to share information. And of course, they were in, in doing so because they don't want to have their conversations on network because under the, at least, well, so there's the SEC and then we have the FTC, F, CFTC, excuse me, the Communities, Commodities Futures Trading Commission, both settled with JP Morgan. So under the for, CEA, for hundreds the Commodities of millions Exchange, of dollars. It's like, like yeah, almost 200 million. dollars. So yeah. yeah, 125 to the SEC and 75 million to the CFTC because they were not on systems that maintain, preserve, and produce records. So basically they, they say if you, if you encrypted end to end and the company can't keep a record of it. Yeah. You're in violation of the law, and it's going to cost you hundreds of millions of dollars. This yes. is a, a, a disincentive to use end-to-end -end encryption, isn't it? Nick has a five-finger. Okay. Um, but yes, <laughs> yeah. Nick? It's a disincentive to use end-to-end -end encryption 
that doesn't still allow access. Yeah. You could, in fact, I think both uh, Signal in particular is leaving a huge amount of money on the table by not offering Signal business. And in Signal yeah. business, you charge five bucks a month and you archive all the yeah. messages securely with the business provider, you provide lots of cryptographic protection so that you can use these end-to-end -end messengers. Mm -hmm. But there's a lack of understanding in some parts of the cryptographic community building these messengers that you want end-to-end, -end, but there is the third party of the business that needs to be a participant in the conversation. Well, speaking as the guy who did the most to publicize the Clipper chip and defend it uh, in the early 90s, I think I, I should take personal responsibility for guaranteeing that the entire cryptographic community hates the idea of third-party access so badly that mm -hmm. they will leave business on the table just to satisfy their ideological opposition to even J.P. Morgan having access to its employees' communications. And uh, congratulations also, the Clipper chip was horribly, yeah. horribly broken. It was uh, not broken. That, that, was, that was a phony up. narrative, too. It, was, it had made some design choices that meant that if you really wanted to use it without having a, a function that would share the key, you could do it. And, and the response from the people who designed it was, yeah, we didn't think it was worth doing that because if that's if what you wanted to do, you could find much cheaper solutions. So we didn't... No, also it was only a 80-bit symmetric cipher, if I recall. And even at the time, bit was considered E. I don't think, um, think 56-bit had been broken then. It was close, though. Uh, uh, yes, but 80 it had. Is, um, 80 is the, much the stronger than had. 56. They, if you wanted to trust the block cipher, you would have used three des instead of some NSA inspired or NSA designed black box for your block cipher. Well, you can't, you can't expect NSA to provide you with tools that will put it out of business. So that's probably true. Uh, I, I did, I, I think it's worth noting why the folks who were at JP Morgan might have done this. I talked to somebody who was in that business who said, we had customers in Asia who said, if you won't let me communicate on WhatsApp, I'm not talking to you. I'll find somebody who's willing to, to take my trades on WhatsApp because I don't trust anything else. Uh, and so um, faced with that kind of customer resistance, I understand why they, why individually brokers might have made that choice, although it obviously didn't work out for them or the company. All right. Two last stories. See if we can get through them quickly. Decoupling is all the rage and the assumption is that the u.s has the leverage and i just want to point to three stories that came out over the break that suggests that this is going to turn out to be a much more complicated story intel u.s company 25 percent of its business in china says u.s law says we can't take components from xinjiang and so we're not going to do it they make that announcement in a little technical release to their supply chain and it blows up on Chinese, well, on Weibo, uh, and they are, they lose their spokesman, they get trashed, everybody uh, is Twitter mobbing them, or the uh, Chinese equivalent of Twitter mobbing them, they have to apologize for having said they're going to abide by U.S. law. Apple is story in the information, following up on their story about the almost $300 million that Tim Cook 
promised he would buy from Chinese suppliers. Apple is apparently still increasing its share of components from China, shifting out of Taiwan and elsewhere in order to meet this requirement at a time when, of course, everybody else is bailing on China because the leverage was with China and he made that commitment. And then finally, and this I think is really significant, SenseTime is an artificial intelligence company in China that the U.S. government fears and dislikes. I put it on a list of companies that Americans cannot invest in and spoiled the plans to do an IPO in the U.S. So they did one in Hong Kong. It was a roaring success in terms of raising almost a billion dollars, if I remember right. And since the since the IPO about a week ago, the uh, price of their shares has gone from three eighty five to nine bucks. Everybody is thrilled about that, except U.S. investors who weren't allowed to invest, and the U.S. government, which is not looking like its sanctions are particularly troubling to companies who want access to capital. So this is an erosion of U.S. capital market sanctions that we're going to see more of. So that's just a quick update and maybe a lesson that goes with it. Scott, there's also lessons for us on how much leverage we have and our companies have in Russia. What's happened there that is sort of in the same vein? I mean, it's sometimes fashionable to say that big tech are the new sovereign states, but not really. Here, Russia has been coming down very hard, asserting what it calls digital sovereignty over big tech. So on the one hand, Google um, and Alphabet, its parent company, are really being kind of squeezed from both sides. On the one hand, the there's this company, a broadcasting company called uh, Sargard, and it's very conservative. It, was, it is run by a sanctioned Russian national who has, the U.S. and the EU has been claimed, have been financing separatists in eastern Ukraine. And um, Google, which owns YouTube, take down uh, Sargard from from YouTube because it is it's sanctioned. So I, it, right. it, 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 I I couldn't tell for sure whether there was an argument that they didn't have to do that. But you would have thought if Sargod itself had been sanctioned, Google can't do business with them. They can't provide services to them. They're, they're, that that's the end of it from a U.S. law point of view. But of course, the Russian Russian law could take the view that they have to. And they right, did. Exactly. Right. And they did. And the appeal, they lost in the lower court and they, Google lost in the appeals court. And so now they're subject to these exponentially doubling fines, first $1,000 a day, and then it doubles every week, such that like in March, it gets to $13 million and then it'll lift the cap. And I think by something like May, it'll be the total capitalization of Alpha. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, they're being fined by Russia for not taking down banned content in Russia. So like they're being fined for taking that down- That was like a hundred million bucks. It was, it was not cheap, right? Yeah, it was $90 million. And then I can't even bring myself to call it Meta, but Meta <laughs> was also fined $20 million for not taking down posts like, which Russia claims promote drug abuse, dangerous pastimes, information about how to make weapons and explosives and, you know, basically videos and content that that promote opposition to the Russian government. So, you know, big tech is 
really is going to have to decide very soon whether it even makes sense to stay in Russia, given that it's not a huge market for them, and Russia's making it particularly impossible to stay there. And as you know, you'd expect them to do, because now they can they can surely find. They, actually, the Russians had a surprising number of substitutes for the Silicon Valley products, but they also can use Chinese products. It's been surprising to me how cautious Putin's been about doing this, but it's clear that after doing some symbolic fines that they got away with, they've decided, well, we can do more of this. And uh, yeah, I, I expect that before we know it, Breitbart will go over there and bring his lawsuit against YouTube for not distributing his uh, channel as well. It's a, it's a much more favorable forum. <laughs> okay, thanks. Uh, this was a great discussion. Megan, Scott, Nick, thanks for joining us. Uh, if you've got questions in the audience, please, comments, anything, send it to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Give us a rating. We'd love to get it, and we'll read your review on the air if it's at all entertaining. Uh, thanks to Weissman Sound Design for our music. This has been episode 388, 400 is looming, of the Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Mm-hmm.